please turn with me in your Bible to where we were earlier, Acts chapter 4. Once you have found your spot there, hold your spot, and then turn with me to Luke chapter 21. So, hold your spot in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, and then we are going to start in Luke chapter 21. If you've been here the last couple of months, we've started through the book of Acts. Uh, If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, this is the birth of the early church and the early history of the church. Uh, Many of the New Testament letters were written during the time period that is traced out for us in the book of Acts. And so far in the book of Acts, we've gotten through the first three chapters, it has been fantastic, right? Everything, many conversions. We've had 3,000 conversions. Today, we'll see the number grows to 5,000, probably referring to men, which may include 5,000 more women and children. It could be a large number, uh, north of 10,000 people. Things are going really well. Jesus has risen. He's ascended. He's poured out His Spirit on His people. They spoke in foreign languages. People from other nations heard the gospel in their own tongues. They were converted. Many have been baptized and have joined this church. It went from 120 people to 3,000 people in a day. That's astonishing. And so, things are going really well in the the city of Jerusalem. But for the next few chapters, conflict raises its ugly head. Uh, And one way to think about this, I, I think this is a good way to break this down, is you have apostate Israel and you have true Israel. And these are the two competing entities in Jerusalem. So, on one side, you have the leaders of apostate Israel who are the bad guys, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the high priest. And then you have true Israel led by Jesus and His apostles, and you find your identity based on whether you believe in Christ. If you reject Jesus, you would, you would not be part of God's true uh, and new Israel. But for those who repent, they are. But here's what happens. As this new Israel is on the scene in the midst of the apostate Israel, conflict begins to arise. And what happens is the apostles are in trouble, and they're in trouble for helping someone. So, Jesus prepared us for this. He prepared them for this and us before His death in Luke 21, verses 12 to 19. And the apostles no doubt would have thought of these verses, these words, when they faced their time of trial. Luke 21, verse 12, Jesus says, "'But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for My name's sake.'" For My name's sake, that will be crucial in today's passage. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." Now, look at this. When when you are brought before kings, 
governors, when you're brought before the leaders, the elites, Jesus says, don't complain. This is your opportunity to bear witness. So, how in the world could the apostles have ever gotten a better audience than they got in today's passage? Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. When it comes to the influential people in Jerusalem at this time, these were the elite of the elites. These were the leaders of the Sanhedrin. And I'll try to show you an image here in just a moment. I had to sort of crop it a little bit, but maybe you can sort of get a sampling of what this would have looked like. This is kind of a sketch of what this might have looked like. The Sanhedrin had 71 members. And so, what this essentially would be like, it was sort of like almost a half circle that you would have uh, in front of you, and you would stand in the middle, talk about an intimidating place to be. You'd have 35 of the elites on one side of you, you'd have 35 on the other, and then the high priest, the 71st member, would be sort of in the center of the room, and you would be facing the, uh, the Sanhedrin. And my goodness, this is the most intimidating audience imaginable, and yet, how else could the apostles have ever had an audience with these people? How in the world could this ever have happened? <clears throat> so, look with me here. Peter in Acts chapter 3 has just finished his sermon at the temple, and um, then look with me at verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, first thing to notice here, do you remember, this is going to stretch your memory, two Sundays ago? Uh, Peter was with John going up to the temple at the time of prayer, which was the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. That's when this whole ordeal started. This is all happening in one day. 3 p.m. it starts. They heal this man who had been unable to walk for his entire life. He was over 40 years old. Everyone knew this man, and there's a massive group of people who are running around the temple trying to figure out what happened. How did this miracle happen? And they go track down Peter and John. And so there's an impromptu gathering of thousands. Peter was ready to go. He had a message ready to go. And so he, he was ready, and he starts preaching, and he preaches the gospel. The healing was done by the very one you rejected and had crucified not long ago. He is resurrected at God's right hand, offering forgiveness. You must repent and trust in Him. And this is causing quite a stir. And this goes on until sunset. So I don't exactly know. There's estimations. Was it 6 p.m.? Was it 7 p.m.? We don't know exactly what time the sun would have gone down. But for three hours or so, maybe longer, he's out there preaching uh, on the Temple Mount with thousands listening, explaining in detail. We're just getting a short summary, right, of his sermon here in, these, in, in chapter 3. We're just getting a little cliff note version, spark note, whatever you you told your teacher you didn't use in college or high school. Uh, you got a little cliff note version of the, of the message here in this text, but it went on for a couple of hours, several hours, and finally the Pharisees and the leaders can't take it any longer. So, who are we dealing with here? Who, who are these people who are, who are upset with them? Okay, I know many of you know this, but it's good to review. So, the Sadducees were a little bit more political than the Pharisees. The Sadducees 
really only embraced the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. They were skeptical of the rest of the Old Testament, and the Sadducees did not believe in a bodily resurrection from the dead. Someone's about to say they were sad, you see. There you go. That's how you can remember that. Now, the Pharisees, you remember that one from back in the day? Yeah, okay. So, the, the Pharisees uh, did believe. They did believe in resurrection, uh, but the Pharisees did not believe that an individual person would be resurrected in the middle of history like Jesus was. That made no sense to them. They believed in the general resurrection at the end when all human beings, uh, those who uh, those, those who are believers, unbelievers, everyone would be resurrected, but they did not believe there would be a, a one resurrection in the center of history. You also had the high priest. Look with me at verses 5 and 6 to hear about them. Verse 5, on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, just real quick, a little more history here. Annas, you may remember Annas and Caiaphas are both referred to when Jesus is going through His trial before His crucifixion. It's a little confusing because there can only be one high priest at a time, and both Annas and Caiaphas are called high priest. And so, people will say, well, how's that? Well, Annas was high priest before Caiaphas. Annas is sort of like, if you think of like, I mean, I don't mean to be overly negative, but they were a pretty bad bunch, and it was controlled by this massive family, and I, it, it's almost like a religious mafia situation here, okay? They're having people killed and all this stuff, but you had, the, you had this sort of father figure over the whole thing, and that's Annas. He used to be high priest, but he's no longer. The reason they call him that is just like a, a president who's no longer president, you still say Mr. President, because that's just what you say to the office. So, Annas was formerly the high priest. His daughter married Caiaphas. So, Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law, and he is now the official high priest in Jerusalem. Okay, does that make sense? So, when Jesus is on that last night before His death, He goes to see Annas, and then He goes to see Caiaphas, because Annas still has real functional authority, because he's the, he's the father figure in this situation. So, Annas still has a lot of, of, of authority in this situation, but Annas and Caiaphas are, are uh, in, in major rebellion against uh, Jesus and against His, uh, his disciples. Now, look with me again back at verse 2, just looking carefully. It says that they were greatly annoyed because the, the disciples were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So, are you following this? The Sadducees don't like resurrection talk because what? They don't believe in it at all. The Pharisees who do believe in resurrection don't like the idea that the resurrection has started ahead of time in one man. Jesus? What are you talking about? He's dead. He's gone. What are you, what, this is nonsense. One resurrected person in the middle of history? That makes no sense. So, both sides thought it was annoying, greatly annoying and ridiculous to speak of one man being resurrected when everyone else is in their normal state. This doesn't make any sense at all. So, if, if the slide, I don't know if the slide will work, but if the slide will come up here, you'll, you'll see, here, here we go. So, this is kind of uh, an artist rendering of what this may have looked like. Thirty-five of the Sanhedrin on one side, thirty-five on the other, the high priest in the middle, and John and Peter would have been standing right there where the accused is marked off, facing the high priest, surrounded. Is that intimidating? That is a terrifying… Now, it's not just intimidating because they may not like what you say. These people had Jesus crucified not long ago. Now, they had a lot of authority, but they could not have people killed. They did have to get Roman authority 
to carry out capital punishment, but they could still make it happen, as you saw in Jesus' case. They could manipulate and they could push Pilate until he finally gave in, and so John and Peter are on a trial for their own lives, as far as they know. This is not simply about being mocked or made fun of. This is about possibly being brutally killed in some way like their leader, Jesus, had already been done. I'm just going to leave, we'll just leave that image up there so you can see it because this, this runs through the entirety of today's passage. So they're here. You've got the religious elites, the religious elites, the high priest and his family. You've got the political elites. Again, I don't want to just go on with the history stuff because I want to get to application and things for us today, but Rome gave Jerusalem and the Jewish people more freedom than was normal to carry on their own religious practices, and they allowed the Sanhedrin to do a lot of the controlling politically of the city unless it was something that disrupted the peace or was capital punishment. But the, the Rome, Rome gave them a lot of freedom, so this ruling body was really the controlling uh, political body of the day in the city. So they were, not just, they were not just religious elites, they were the political elites, and number three, they were the academic elites. It mentions the scribes. These were experts in the law of God. Now, in one sense, that's true, and in one sense, that's not quite right, is it? Their expertise was, not, was lacking, okay? But they, they, they knew the Bible, the Old Testament, extraordinarily well, and they were experts in that. So, you had the religious, political, and academic elites. Now, just let's be honest here. If you're in college right now, or graduate school, and you're in class, and you're surrounded by your peers, maybe a little bit, maybe not quite like this, but you kind of feel this, okay? You've got everyone around you in your class. Maybe it's a large class. Maybe it's 100 people, 300 people. Maybe it's 20 people. And your professor is hostile to Christianity. I mean, I can remember things my professor said that shocked me about Christianity, and you've probably been there. And you want to say something winsome and wise and helpful, and you also feel like you need to stand up and say something, and you're kind of battling. You ever been there? You're battling, should I raise my hand? Maybe you're like, I don't really know how to even say the right things, and I'll probably look like an idiot, and then I won't even, my sentences won't even make sense. I'll get nervous, and then everyone's going to look at me, and we've all been there, okay? And so, maybe you raise your hand. I did this a few times, okay? A lot of times I failed, but sometimes I, I was like, I think I need to say something. And so, you know, raise my hand. I can remember first day. This is going back in time. First day, uh, this is my, I think my freshman semester, or second semester maybe of college, I go into my philosophy class. I sit down. It wasn't a big class, 30 people or so. My professor comes in. He's like in his late, maybe mid to late 60s, super smart guy. And he writes on the board, humanity is the measure of all things. I think he said man. Man is the measure of all things. And he said, what do you think? And I thought, it's now or never. I, you know, if you, if you don't let people know you're a Christian early on, it's much harder to let them know later on. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? So, if, if you don't, I think Spurgeon said, if you don't raise your flag early on, then you're probably not going to raise your flag as to who I am, you know? So, the classes where I told people I was a Christian in the first week, I then sort of became the token Christian, which was actually kind of fun. And the classes where I didn't in the first week say I was a Christian or mention anything when it came up, I just never said anything about being a Christian. It was weird. It's like half my classes, they knew I was a Christian. Half the classes, they had no clue. And so, I remember, I raised my hand. I was nervous. 
I was one of the younger people in that room, and uh, my professor called on me, and uh, I said, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, and I think God is the measure of all things. I think He's the standard of, for all things. And uh, so, there it was. So, I, I got it. The cat was out of the bag. I can't hide now. And then from that point, cool opportunities opened up in that philosophy class with other students that I was in. There was an atheist to my right and his girlfriend behind him. And like, there, there were just people in the room that, that you're able to begin to talk to. So, just want to, as a, as a piece of application here, this may be anywhere in life, let's err on the side of being more forthright about our faith than less forthright. In this day and age, I'm kind of done playing around here. Like, I believe in Jesus. I really do. I'm a flawed person. I'm a really flawed person. But I know that the Lord Jesus is alive. He changed my entire life, and He has forgiven me, and He is real. It's not just religion. It's not just something you do because it's a nice little ritual on the weekend to feel better about yourself or to maybe kind of get to, get to know some friends. No, th- this is real. And so, I mean, my wife is simply better at this than I am, but uh, just young married couples with kids in the room. There's a few of us here. Every day there's another couple with a child, which is fantastic. And so, uh, so you know, you're, you're, at the, you're at the park and, you know, your kids are playing, and there's other couples with their little kids playing, and this is where I get really, like, I can't do this. And, and my wife is just, like, better at this than I am. And so, uh, we're at the park, and, you know, Mike is there, Molly's there, and they're playing, and Mike is, you know, suddenly best friends with some random <laughs> three-year-old, and so they're playing around on the slide or whatever it may be. And, uh, man, for me personally, that's one of the hardest spots in life to talk about anything of substance. It, you know, the, the other, the parents' kids, I mean, the, excuse me, the parents' kids. The kids' parents are, are next to you, and there's kind of small talk and things like that, and man, it is so hard for me at any point to bring up anything that even comes close to spiritual. And, and Kelly could just say stuff. I'm like, wow, I admire that. So, uh, th- I, I want to be get better and better at just being bolder about my, my faith. So, here they are standing in front of the elite. So, college, you got the academic setting. Uh, it might be other religions, it might be in a political setting, whatever it may be, we need to be, I think, erring on the side of humble boldness rather than saying, I'm just going to wait a couple of months, years, decades, and then one day I'll find the right moment in this relational evangelism where like 73 years into this friendship, they will ask me, did Jesus rise from the dead? And I'll say, this is the moment I've been waiting for. Yes, He did. And then, you know, so, not saying it's always wrong to do that, but I just think time is short. Let's, let's, let's go for it. Let, let's go for it. And so, Peter and John are not afraid to be very direct, and so let's see what happens. Here they are surrounded. Oh, first, look at verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So, they are put in uh, prison, in a holding place for the night, and this is not the first, I mean, excuse me, this is not the last time that apostles will be put in prison during the book of Acts, and it only gets increasingly worse from here. So, look with me here at verse 7. Surrounded by these elites, verse 7, this is what it says, and when they had set them in the midst, 
They're surrounded. They inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, let me stop there. If, if you were in Peter's shoes, if I was in Peter's shoes, there's a way to try to get around the predicament that they're in. If you were, if you were on the cowardly side, here's what you, you know how you get out of this situation? It's pretty easy. Is what you say. Because they believe in God, right? They, they talk about God. So you just say, God healed this guy. Of course, God, God did this amazing healing. Yahweh, God. He healed him. And would that have reduced some of the tension in the room? They believe God can heal people. What was the controversial issue? The name of Jesus. Has that changed in the last 2,000 years? Man, God talk is pretty acceptable today. To this day, I mean, you, you can talk about God, the generic God, all you want. Um, I won't even say which president. This goes back several presidents. I won't even say who it is because that's not my point. But a president uh, was speaking to the nation a number of years ago, and these words came out of the president's mouth. I can't remember if this was a prayer or if this was when they were just speaking to the nation, but it was, it was in front of everyone. And it was something like this, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, uh, neither the present nor the future will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's Romans 8, right? Was anything left out? In the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. So, you can get away with generic God talk, and even Bible verses that have sort of a generic God word there that a lot of people might not feel uncomfortable with. When do people start getting a little bit on the uncomfortable side? Oh, you're one of those people. It's when the name of Jesus. Bringing up the name of Jesus is just a different kind of thing. I mean, God has blessed me, God is this, God is that. A lot of people will say, that's fine. But when you say, Jesus Christ has changed my life, that's when everything gets a little more awkward in the conversation. I'm just going to say this over and over today. Let's be ready to just step into the awkwardness of saying, I belong to Jesus. I'm not apologizing for that. In fact, I would like you to belong to Jesus too, and He's offering that to you just like He offered it to me free of charge because it cost Him His life. So, Peter could have tried to wiggle out and just mention generically God, but look what Peter says in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man is standing before you well. Now, pause there. I left out something. He could have also said that, which is offensive enough. But Peter adds this phrase, which he wasn't even asked about. Look at it. Verse, middle of verse 10. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by the way, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Think about who he's talking to. He says, okay, the name in which this healing was performed is the name of Jesus Christ. Now, don't, don't, you know, Christ is not his last name, right? We know this. It wasn't Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, and then they had Jesus Christ. We, we know this. Christ is a title. 
the Greek word Christos, the Hebrew equivalent word is Messiah. And so, he's not just saying Jesus Christ first and last name, he's saying Jesus the Jewish Messiah. The one that you guys claim to be waiting on, he already came and you guys had him killed. I mean, we don't understand the level of inflammatory this is. You're looking at the elite religious group, the elite political and academic group, and you're saying, you guys who study the Bible, you guys who are crazy about the Bible, teaching the Bible, you guys who are, have all the control, you guys who are the powerful, the rich, many of them would have been landowners in the city who would have had a lot of wealth. You guys in particular had the actual Messiah of God crucified and killed by the hands of the Romans, and God proved that He was the Messiah and that He was innocent in Himself because God raised from the dead, and He's now seated at God's right hand. This is the kind of language that can actually get Peter and John killed. That's the level of intensity to these words. Look with me at verse 11. He goes on. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, just pause here for a moment. Turn with me to the right to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is toward the back of your New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice it's the same person, right? Peter was speaking there, and now Peter is writing here. This is Peter's letter. So, the same man speaking, and he says the same kind of thing, this idea of the cornerstone. What is this cornerstone conversation about? First Peter 2, starting in verse 4. Again, referring to Jesus, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. So here, Peter says, listen, Jesus was the cornerstone. You remember how this worked in old buildings? The cornerstone would be the first stone put into position in the corner of the building, and it would only be partially below ground, so you could still usually see it. And its angles determined the building how the rest of the building would be built. So, you angle everything based on the cornerstone. It's your standard of measurement. You put that in place first, and then the entire building is built around that. The foundation goes around the… Uh, is, is built from the cornerstone, and then stones going up from there. And, and Peter says here, the stone that was rejected… So, the idea is, some people are out digging. They're looking for these massive stones they can use for buildings, and they find one that could be a cornerstone. And after examining it, they say, no, nah, this one's flawed, get it out of here, and they pick another cornerstone. And Peter says, the stone that they rejected wasn't a flawed cornerstone, it was the cornerstone, it was the Messiah Himself. And so, God is now building His end-time temple out of living stones, you and I, 
based around this cornerstone of Jesus, the apostles lay the other foundation stones, Ephesians says, and then we are being built on the foundation of Christ and His apostles, God's end-time temple, meaning that God dwells in our midst. So, you can turn back to Acts chapter 2, and now we get to a tremendous verse. Acts 4.12, many of you may have this memorized. Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, before I get to verse 12, I want to start with this whole, they've been with Jesus. Listen to what one uh, writer says, a little story here. Brief story, this is what it says. Jennifer was teaching some basic geography to a class of eight-year-olds. They were studying Australia. They had just drawn a rough map together and had worked out where the main cities were. Then Jennifer asked the class if anyone could say what sort of things most people in Australia did. And they all kind of say these like, you know, stereotypical stuff. They don't really know. They're eight-year-olds. They're guessing about Australia. And then finally, well said a little girl in the back of the room. A long time ago, nearly all Australians worked on farms. They looked after sheep and cattle, and they grew all sorts of crops. Nowadays, people in the big cities do all sorts of other things too, of course, like business and making cars and building houses and all the other things people get up to do. But still, a large number of Australians are farmers, and the further you go inland, the more likely you are to find them running farms. The whole class stared at this girl in disbelief. She had spoken so confidently, and she seemed to be exactly right on everything she said about Australia. And it says this, the, the teacher, Jennifer, said, how did you learn all that? We've only just started studying Australia today. Did you read a book about it? No, said the girl, tossing her head with a mixture of pride and embarrassment. It's just that we used to live there. My dad used to run a cattle farm with several thousand cows. I knew all about it from as soon as I could talk. And then the writer adds, there are, in other words, more ways of learning things than studying them in books. Book learning, in fact, is often a poor substitute for first-hand experience. If you want to really get inside a subject or have it inside of you, he says, and that was what was so striking about Peter and John. Let me reread verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been what? With Jesus. It wasn't that they had gone to rabbinical school. They did not have a PhD in theology. They had simply spent three years with Jesus. Around the clock, 24-7, seven days a week, with Jesus all the time. These Galilean fishermen were able to really embarrass in their understanding of Scripture, they were, willing, they were able to almost embarrass this group of elites, even though they had no formal training. They were uneducated common men, and they astonished the whole room, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. There is a kind of knowledge of Christ that comes through experience. Don't throw anything at me for heresy here, okay? Obviously, we have ex an experience with the Lord Jesus. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He he prompts us to cry, Abba, Father. There are things that an unregenerate person who has a PhD in theology can't know that all of us know who know Jesus. 
Do you understand that? You, you could know all the original languages. You could have everything memorized, but if your heart is hard as stone, you do not have a basic experiential knowledge of who God is. You don't know what it means to, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You, you can know the words, but you don't know what it means until you have tasted that, until you have experienced that. And John and Peter knew the Lord Jesus. They had spent time with Him. And I will say to you, don't ever be intimidated by the fact that you may feel like you don't know all the answers to Bible questions. Nobody knows all the answers to Bible questions in this room, okay? So, don't feel that way. Instead, spend time with Jesus and then let it show. Uh, by the mouth of babes and infants, God has established strength because of the foe to still the enemy and the avenger. The Lord likes to use the weak. The Lord likes to use those who are not so able, who aren't as educated as these elites were. He loves to use them because then His Spirit empowering them gets the glory, not them. The, 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 the Sadducees and Pharisees are astonished at the boldness of these two Galilean peasants. They even had a Galilean accent, which was thought less of. Remember Peter, the night of the betrayal? Surely you're one of him. Your voice betrays you. You have the accent of a Galilean. They would have thought, oh, that's, you know, uneducated territory. No, the point here is, if we've spent time with the Lord Jesus and His Spirit is filling us, the Lord can use us mightily. And the weaker the vessel, the more honor goes to the one who is working in us and through us. But let's look again here at verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I saw a definition, I think it was Kevin DeYoung, defined boldness as being clear in the face of fear. I like that. Being clear in the face of fear. Hold your spot here and turn again to the right to Colossians chapter 4. I love this brief passage, Colossians chapter 4, a few books to your right. Being clear in the face of fear is holy boldness. Look what Paul says about his evangelism. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So, Colossians chapter 4, and look with me at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on which account I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, or redeeming the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, the boldness that Paul prays for is that he would be able to speak clearly. You say, what? How does clear have to do with bold? That doesn't… Clear equals bold? What do, you, what do you mean? Well, you can turn back to Acts 4. Maybe you'll see Christian people on TV. I won't name names, perhaps. But I, mean, I can remember, this would be low-hanging fruit to critique this particular pastor, but um, there was a pastor once uh, who was on Larry King's show back when Larry King had that, Larry King Live on CNN, and the pastor was asked, you know, if an atheist dies, will they be saved? 
Or if a Muslim who is a committed Muslim dies, will they go to heaven when they die? Or a committed Jew, and going through, Larry King was, you know, and this pastor said, well, you know, who am I to judge? I, I can't judge. I can't judge someone's heart. I, I'll leave that in God's hands. I don't want to say. Now, is that being clear? No, but it, but it also, think about it. To be clear means you have to be bold. Because if you're asked that question, to be clear on that answer is going to cost you. To, to say clearly, no, we believe there is one way of salvation. I remember, I remember yeah, saying to a non-Christian one time, you know, what do you do with Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And the person said to me, it, that has to be a mistranslation of what Jesus said. I thought, that's actually an easy sentence to translate. That, that's not a, a translation issue. I am the way. Uh, and so, that, this idea of Christianity being exclusive if we're going to be clear on that, it is loving and it takes courage, but it will not be well received. And so, even in our own heart, let's check, am I being intentionally vague in order to escape being looked at funny, or am I being clear on basic issues of truth? And here, they could not be more clear. They use negatives twice, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me read um, this, this great little book, Tactics by Greg Kogel, a great apologetics book about asking important questions to other people. Just take a, t- take a moment here to read about a story he, when he, he talked to a, a woman on a train heading from Normandy to Paris, and here's what happened. This was a a girl who said she was a Christian, but she didn't like the idea that Jesus is the only way. She even felt uncomfortable as a Christian about that. And this is how the conversation went. She had been educated at a Christian college, and she had uh, what she described as a strong relationship with the Lord. Still, she was perplexed by the idea that others were lost apart from trust in Christ. You see, that's the exclusivity thing. Are people lost if they don't trust in Jesus explicitly? So, Greg Kokel here asks her, what about someone who believes, or she said, excuse me, she said, what about someone who believes in God, she asked. What about the person who is sincerely following his own religion and trying to be the best person he can be? And Greg Kokel says, I hear these kinds of questions from non-Christians all the time, but I've also been, in hearing, I've also been hearing them more frequently from professing Christians. I suspected this girl, Shannon, already knew uh, enough to answer her own question. She simply had not pieced it together. So, he, he asked her this question on the train. Why should anyone become a Christian in the first place? You and I are Christians. What benefit does putting our trust in Jesus give us? This girl, Shannon, answered, well, Jesus saves us. He says, from what? Well, He saves us from our sins. Right. You might say we have a spiritual disease called sin, and Jesus did something on the cross that healed the disease. She nodded, yes. Can simply believing in God heal that disease, just God generically? She said, no. After thinking about it, no, 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 that's not enough. Then he he asked her, can trying our best to be a good person heal the disease of sin? Or being being really religious? Or how about being completely sincere? Can any of those things forgive our sin? She shook her head. No, none of these things in themselves could take away our guilt. We'd still be, he, uh, we'd still be dying from our spiritual disease, wouldn't we? I said. She agreed. Then I simply connected the dots for her. And this is the last part. 
He says to her, if religion or sincerity or, quote, doing our best cannot save you and I, then how can any of those things save someone else? Either Jesus rescues us by taking the punishment for our sin on Himself, or we're not saved by Jesus and we have to pay for our own crimes ourselves. It's no more complicated than that. So, think about that. Jesus offers salvation to anyone who will turn and trust Him. Anyone, everyone who turns and trusts Jesus will be saved because He bore our sin. He paid the fine for our sin on the cross. But if I don't believe in Jesus, then who's paying for my sin? The answer is, I am. And so, it's, exclusivity is not some sort of evil thing. Um, let, me, let me add one other piece to this. So, R.C. Sproul um, said this, essentially, I'll paraphrase. He's been asked a lot of times, why would God provide only one way of salvation? Why wouldn't God provide six ways or 20 ways or 50 ways of being saved? Why just one? And R.C. Sproul said, I think we framed the question incorrectly when we asked that. And so, Sproul backs up and says this, imagine this, imagine God made a perfect world, and He made us sinless and perfect, and He placed us in the Garden of Eden. And imagine He said we can do whatever we want, there's just this one prohibition, don't eat from this one tree. Then He said, imagine on penalty of death. And He says, imagine as soon as God leaves the scene, we rebel against God, we pick treason against submission to God, we choose our way against His way, we prefer ourselves to God, wanting to be equal to Him, we grasp for supremacy with God. What did the serpents say? You will be like God. They grasp for supremacy with God, the God who made them and gave them everything that they did not deserve, and then they fell. And instead of killing them, God kills an animal and clothes them with the animal skin. And then God gives them a life of centuries to live. Remember, they lived a long time, Adam did it, and Eve. We don't know how long Eve lived, but they lived a long time. And then it says this, not only am I going to give you the grace of letting you live and clothing you, I'm also promising through Eve to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent, Satan, and then to redeem you from your sin if you will trust Him. And then imagine I send prophets to these people, and they stone and kill the prophets. And this happens century after century. They try to kill my representatives and my spokespeople. But I continue to extend grace to them, and I continue to offer forgiveness to them, and I continue to be patient with them. And then finally, I send my own son and they crucify Him. They crucify God's Son. And God says, it's okay. Even though you murdered my Son, I'm still going to allow His death to open a door of salvation for anyone on the planet who turns from trusting in self and trusts in Christ, and you will be saved. And then imagine the ingratitude of those people who, upon hearing that message, say, God, you haven't done enough. If you were God, how would you respond to the immense, unimaginable lack of gratitude to the unending grace and patience of God throughout human history. And instead, we go, God, why not six? Why not 20? Why not 50 ways? Why not 150 ways? Why not 1,000 ways? Why not… It's just, when does it stop? God has provided a way for people who deserve no way. He's opened a door of salvation for people who deserve, like me, death followed by God's eternal conscious judgment of torment in hell for my sin which is what I deserve. And instead, Jesus bore the judgment of God for all who will trust Him, and the door of salvation is wide open, and Jesus' arms are outstretched, inviting all to come and take freely of the water of life. And our response as a culture is to say, how dare you give me one way? Just think about that. 
God has given you a way, the way. Be astonished that there is an open door of salvation. Be astonished that there is a way to know God and to be right with God. Look with me here at verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Once you have entered through the door, remember, Jesus says, I am the door. You come in through me for salvation. Once we've entered through the way, then, and the goal is not to be rude, when the authorities say, you've got to shut up about Jesus. And if you keep talking about Jesus, we're going to punish you and perhaps have you killed, as will happen to Stephen in a couple of chapters. Once you walk through the way, once you know the Lord, once you've been saved by Jesus, you're not doing it to be rebellious, but you cannot obey man rather than God. And you cannot disobey God to please man. And so, listen, on a small scale, this will be everyday stuff where you know if I stand up and say something for Jesus here, I know people will look at me and think of me differently from now on, like with your neighbors or with your roommates or someone in your apartment building. You know, if the, when you finally raise the flag and say something about Jesus, you just know, I'm asking to be watched from now on. You, you know about the being watched from now on thing? Because as soon as you say, I'm a Christian, then when you, have a, when you come home grumpy and you're, you know, you're complaining and you know, slam a door, suddenly people are like, oh, like, you're, I thought you were a Christian. So then, then you've got to be very careful. You, you want to be very aware of how your life is portraying your testimony. But once we've entered by the door, we must obey God rather than man. And I'm, I don't want to sound alarmist as I close here. I'm not trying to sound alarmist, but... I do think our culture, generally speaking, is becoming increasingly, obviously, more hostile to biblical teaching. Not just about the exclusivity of Jesus, but many of the things we talked about yesterday here at the little conference, the sexual revolution and, and sexual ethics. I mean, you do understand the Bible says sexuality is for a man and a woman in the context of marriage and nowhere else. That belief alone is enough to be considered hate speech. It's enough to be considered a form of intolerance that is unacceptable. Uh, I don't know if the day is coming where for certain jobs you'll have to sign certain statements to disagree with biblical morality just to get a job somewhere. I don't, I don't know where all this is going to be heading, but here's what I want to say. God is in control. We, we can rest with that sense, 
But if the day comes where we are asked to be unfaithful to biblical truth, which I don't think is as far away as it might otherwise be thought to be, we need to be ready and determined starting right now that we will speak what is true according to God's Word, even if it costs us something valuable. Not just someone looking at you funny, but you could be facing more serious consequences in the job world, or I don't know, I don't know what it will look like, but determine now as Christians, with love in our heart, with tears in our eyes, we will speak the truth, so help me God, whatever comes our way, and that we will be committed to God's truth, even if we are called things that we are not. Okay, I said I was closing, I'm almost there. I, I have found, I think this is true, there's an increasing tendency amongst Christians to measure the goodness or evil of what we're doing based on how other people react to it. And I just want to say that's a dangerous idea because Jesus was the perfect embodiment of love and He was hated for it. And so, don't think that if you're loving Jesus and being truthful and genuinely humble that you will always be well-received. In the book of Acts, we will find out that sometimes people filled with the Spirit are put in jail. And so, just be aware, we should not grade what we're doing based on necessarily reactions from others. We should grade it based on what Scripture itself teaches. And on that point, I want to go ahead and wrap up. So, please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, I pray for all in this room, all within the hearing of my voice who are believers in Jesus. God, help us not to be rebels for the sake of being a rebel, but help us to be so committed to Your truth in this world that we are willing to take a bold stand for what You teach and what Your Word says no matter what. Give us Your Spirit, fill us with Your Spirit continually so that when the day comes for us to stand up and to raise our flag and to say, I belong to Jesus, that we would have the courage and the conviction to do so and help us to speak the truth clearly, compassionately, and not be tempted to edit out the parts that might not be as well received in order to be liked. God, I pray that John and Peter's example here would be an encouragement to us, and most of all, the Lord Jesus, who stood for truth at the cost of His own life. So, God, please be at work in us. Give us deep roots of conviction. Help us not to be easily blown over by the winds of the thinking of this age, and help us to be different in all the right ways from our culture around us and help people to see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.